Welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on Tyler Pinkard. Tyler was raised on a horse farm in Arizona, served as an Army intelligence officer, and is now the founder and CEO of Coffee Shift, a direct-to-consumer coffee retailer using blockchain technology to benefit the growers and other vulnerable parties in the coffee supply chain. By taking some of the complexities and uncertainties out of the international payment flow, Farmers in Colombia become more readily able to support their families, keep their farms, and thrive in a global marketplace. Learn more from Tyler Pinkard. Thank you for making time. It's great to meet you. Likewise, Lawrence. I, uh, I watched the documentary uh, on YouTube yesterday, and uh, we'll make sure that we link to that from the, uh, the episode notes as well. Before we dig into the specifics of what you're up to now, Tell me a little bit about your background and tell our listeners um, where you're from, where you grew up, because I think you're, you're, the story of the early part of your life uh, really does set the context for what you're up to now. So who are you and where are you from? Uh, sure, man. Uh, my name is Tyler Pinkard. Uh, I grew up uh, way back in the day in Arizona uh, on a horse farm. Went to college on an ROTC scholarship, so spent some time in the military. Uh, Studied computer engineering. I uh, have a very strong uh, engineering background and working in industry for 15 years now. Hobbies include coffee, skiing, uh, aviation, and travel when we're not in the midst of a global pandemic. <laughs> so where in, uh, where in Arizona did you grow up? Uh, it's a town called Queen Creek. Uh, it's just outside Phoenix, I'd say 40 miles or so. Uh, formerly like a very rural agricultural uh, town, just to give you uh, like a, a base mark. When I started high school, there was a total of 250 people in all four of the grades in high school there. And by the time I graduated, the high school itself was over 1,300 students. Wow. Um, because Phoenix is like a virus. It just grows out. And so it's since I left, it's uh, pretty much consumed by the Phoenix metro area. Yeah, I know somebody that moved out to, um, to Prescott Valley um, in the early 90s, and it was uh-huh. very similar. It was like you know, the roads would just end at the outskirts of town. And, uh, and it's, it's quite a, it's quite a, um, I guess a suburb now, basically. Uh, it's, it's interesting you'd say that because I went to college in Prescott. Um, so I've spent a lot of time up there and also got to see that growth take place in the mid 2000s while I was out there. Yeah. My, my, uh, my girlfriend's family lives, um, her parents are in surprise. And, uh, so we were out there, uh, before the pandemic and, uh, she did a brief, brief stint um, in Wickenburg for a little while, which was a very uh, cute little place. So I, I know the area a little bit. I've been out there a couple of times. You know, I've been to Scottsdale, I've uh, been out to Taliesin, um, but I haven't spent a ton of time in Arizona. But it's a, it's a beautiful and um, an alien terrain. You know, once you get out of Phoenix and into the, into the actual topography of the state, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Oh, yeah. You got the deserts to the south, the mountains to the north, the Grand Canyon, which everybody should go see with their eyeballs. Yeah. Um, and then the, some of the lesser known, uh, like, uh, of course, there's 
uh, Sedona. Mm-hmm. Those red rocks are gorgeous, and it's attracted quite a community out that way. And what um what brought your people to Arizona? Like what you know? Are you were you all newcomers? Had you been out there for a while? How did you how did you wind up there? Uh, so as I understand it, it was my great great grandfather. I'm fifth generation Arizona, hmm. uh, living here in California now. So I'm on the outskirt, but. Um, I think it was after the Civil War, uh, the family, like, well, things weren't going so well in the South uh, with the Reconstruction, and they got upset and then settled into to, uh, a town called McNeil. So, I don't know, about 20 miles from the what's now currently the Mexican border, but at the time was within the, the, um, the country of Mexico. And then with the Gadsden Purchase, became part of the United States, and... Uh, my grandfather worked in agriculture and building, um, spent some time in the army as well. And uh, my dad is a builder in Arizona. And so it's, yeah, agricultural roots, ranching specifically with some uh, farming. Uh, have you ever heard of a, a Pima cotton? Say it again. Pima cotton. You see it in clothing. Oh, okay. it's, a, it's like a brand of clothing that was uh, developed by my, uh, my great, great uncle. So your so. so your family's been in and around uh, agriculture, sort of living off the land for yeah quite some time. Yeah. My dad has uh, raises horses, has a, a Appaloosa farm, but uh, he makes his living through building yeah. uh, industrial stuff. And were you a, would you would you consider yourself coming from a military family? Like how, how did you end up um, how did you end up on the <laughs> ROTC track? Uh, well, it was really simple. Uh, I knew when I started my senior year of high school, I did not want to be living with my parents <laughs> next year. And so I, it was a multi-prog approach like, okay, how are we going to accomplish this? What's, what is able to bring us the most uh, benefit? And that, what I knew is I did not want to uh, go into a lot of debt because I've seen a lot of my peers, especially when you get your career started and you got uh, six figures of education debt hanging over your head. It could be a hard, uh, hard thing to climb out of. Um, so applied to the Arizona schools, Prescott uh, was uh, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, ASU, U of A, um, was accepted to all of them, but uh, it was the Prescott ROTC who came back to me and said, all right, you know, did good on your, your tests. We're willing to give you a full ride scholarship. And I'm like, ha, yes. <laughs> Sold to the highest exactly. bidder. <laughs> exactly. Like we've got this problem solved and uh, yeah, it was a, uh, I went there because they were the first people to show up. But the fact that I started my, or I did my education at Denver Middle was really beneficial to me in my career because it was a small school with small class sizes and a lot of really good hands-on time with the instructors, which set me up for success yeah. uh, in my research. I did as an undergrad and then I pushed off into industry. Well, you know, I, I feel like we, it's safe to say that we sort of live in a time where, um, most people don't come into contact with military service, right? Like it's, you know, volunteer Mm -hmm. service, um, relatively few do. And so there's a bit of novelty to talk to somebody who has any kind of a, um, you know, an armed forces background these days. And I wonder, um, was there any meaningful difference to your college experience um, because of the, of that, sort of affiliation and because like what, what obligations came with, with taking that scholarship and how did it sort of shape your early life experience? 
Uh, as a college student, the I mean, it definitely is a different uh, experience, but it's not nearly as radical as say going to one of the academies. Like, yeah. thank God I didn't go to West Point because those guys hate their lives. <laughs> like, I, I they never seem to be having a good time when I would talk to them. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, I've got my normal undergraduate engineering classes, but also you got to wake up three days a week for 6 a.m. physical training. So go down to the gym and go, you know, do your push-ups, sit-ups, and exercise. Keeps you in shape. And uh, there's a college class you sign up for called military science. So you, when you're an under, uh, like first two years, it's just like a one credit hour class. Uh, so not really much in the way of like an obligation. And then that stands up, gets a little bigger. I think it turns into twice a week class for the second two half. And then there's a leadership, what they call a leadership lab, which is like, uh, you know, as engineering, you get electronics labs. This is like your military lab where it's two hours where you get together and practice your squad tactics, small squad team tactics to measure and evaluate your leadership skills. So you break off into say a group of like 10 cadets and all right, you guys, uh, your mission is to go attack this bunker over there, 200 meters. Okay. And so you divide your team up, you brief them the mission, uh, you execute. And then there's a guy standing there with a clipboard, like grading you on it the whole time. And then that's, it becomes a big chunk of the final grade you get in the army. Uh, when they put you on the order of merit list, they say, okay, you did really good. So we'll give you the exact job you wanted, or you weren't so good. So you get the leftovers, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. If you want to be a pilot, it's really hard to get that slot. So you got to be, you know, a plus on everything. And in the, um, in the sort of inbound funnel into the, uh, into the service, what role does ROTC play? So it's not quite, I've walked into the strip mall and uh, yeah. signed up and it's not, I went to an academy. Um, you know, where does it fit sort of, I guess in the hierarchy or, or not even necessarily, yeah. I don't mean hierarchy, but what function does ROTC play from the military's point of view? So, so there's like, if you were going to divide your military up into groups of folks there, you've got the enlisted, which are like the, the doers, the people that are out there actually fulfilling the mission, keeping things running, you know, fixing the trucks, pulling triggers, you know, the guys that are executing the missions of the United States. There's a, uh, within the enlisted, there's called the non-commissioned officers, which are the senior enlisted guys and the guys like, oh, I've been doing this for 10 years. I know how this works. You know, that really like badass, some of the best leaders I've ever worked with are the NCOs because they've been there, seen it, done it, and they know how to keep. They're the kind of the motivated. work their way up kind of guys. The other half of. Exactly. And then the other half of that is the officer corps. Um, and this, this goes back to the Romans. Um, like this is a very long, uh, like the way these organizations have grown, uh, go back in human history. But the officer corps is, comes from the, uh, you got to have a college degree in order to be an officer is the first step. So like Academy and ROTC, both feed into the same place. Once Gosh, you get through okay. it, there's no difference in your career, except for maybe some of the uh, like uh, networking you were able to do at the Academy. Those guys tend to stay in a long time. Like most of the generals typically come from the academies. Um, and so being ROTC, once I finished my college, uh, the day I graduated, I commissioned as a second lieutenant. Um, and so I, I did my, the bulk of my military career as an officer. Uh, something I didn't mention is I enlisted while I was in college. So I also did that job. And so uh, I stopped being enlisted and became an officer on that graduation day. That's the other question I had for you. So as part of ROTC, when you graduate from college, do you then have a term of service that you have to go complete? Or is it you've gone and now you're just in the reserve? Like, how does that work? Oh, 
oh, you get nothing for free from Uncle Sam. Uh, so, yeah. So when I, I got that ROTC scholarship that came uh, as part of a contract, and that's a obligation to serve for four years after. Oh, okay. And so when I started, I was going to go into uh, straight into active duty. And then halfway through college, I'm like, you know, maybe I want to go get a PhD. And so I switched over to what's called Guaranteed Reserve Forces uh, like duty program. I forget the exact acronym. It's been many years. <laughs> but um, yeah, that way when I commissioned, I, I went into the National Guard instead of going into the active duty service because um, I wanted to, I thought I wanted to go do PhD. I played a summer doing grad student at UC Davis. And I thought, nah, man, I think I want to go get a job. Let's go make some money. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, given the, um, you know, the, the state of engagement that our country's been in for really the last 20 or so years, um, what era did you serve? And, and did you, you know, did you ever sort of have a notion that you wanted to see combat or like, how did, how did, the, how did the actual oh, deployment yeah. shape into your mindset of being in the military? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, when you're an 18 year old kid, you know, I, I was in call in high school and the towers came down on September 11th. I signed my contract into the army uh, on September 11th, two th or 2003. So exactly two years after that happened, it was very strong. It's like, yeah, coach put me in. I'm ready to go to war. Let me do this. All right. Um, as I mentioned, I switched to reserve forces duty because it's like, no, let's go to college. Let's do research. You know, let's focus in on that aspect. Still thinking, man, am I missing out? Should I be going to deployment going to do that stuff? And it wasn't until my peers that I went through college with, that I went through ROTC with, getting sitting around uh, pre-COVID times, like, hey, tell me about it. Like, dude, you didn't miss anything. It's just a bunch of stupid, like, dumbassery. <laughs> the military is famous for, I mean, their mission is extremely hard, right? Go to Iraq and make it safe when those people there don't like each other. <laughs> and here we are as the outside invaders trying to act as police. And like, soldiers aren't built to be police. They're uh, built to go out and crush enemies. And so we can do it, you know, like the, what I can say about the military is the baseline level of professionalism is amongst the highest I've ever been to, been around in any, any sort of environment I've worked on. So everybody's super motivated, they wanna do well, but if the, like, the political considerations, what is it we're trying to do, don't align with uh, what the people on the ground, it, it makes for unhappiness. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, you know, it's, <laughs> I don't have too many strong opinions on, you know, whether what we're doing there is right or wrong, but uh, I do know that I don't like putting friends in the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I've talked to several uh, veterans, um, including family members, my dad. Um, and one of the common themes, and I guess, I guess it, it seeps its way into pop culture as well is sort of the, what you called the dumbassery. Um, and a lot of the, um, you know, the waiting and the, um, the killing time, you take a lot of young men and put them in that situation and all manner of like dumbassery ensues. Yeah. Shenanigans. shenanigans. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> soldiers being soldiers, man. Like what were you thinking? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And then you give them heavy equipment and explosives or, uh, or just the skills to be, you know. Uh, to have some ingenuity and all kinds of hijinks uh, ensue. Uh, part of that falls on the leadership, right? Like you can't allow your men to get get bored because then they will do silly stuff to embarrass you. So how do you structure your your training 
schedules, your regiment around making sure that they're fully engaged in a way that makes them feel good about their job. Yeah. I, I always thought about it as like having a, um, a, a Labrador puppy and it's like, you better make sure that puppy's tired or he's going to eat your couch. <laughs> oh yes. No, that's, that's one of the best uh, analogies that I've ever heard. It's exactly like that. I mean, it's a 19 year old kid who's like mostly pissed off, you know, it's in the best shape of their life. And like, yeah, <laughs> put them in and get them used. Yeah. So, um, Tell me a little bit about uh, what's that transition like now? So you've spent your college years and then a chunk of time afterwards in a very specific sort of mental model and context. Um, what's your transition into uh, civilian life and, and, you know, professionally and personally? What's the, what, what, how does that work so, for you? So I did it in the National Guard. So I didn't like do the whole, all right, no more of the Army. And now I'm just 100% civilian. Um, it's a... Uh, the, the marketing term is one week and a month, two weeks a year. The actual obligation comes a lot more involved uh, than that. But uh, how so? Yeah. How so? What's what is the difference between the marketing? Oh, well, I mean, you need to be on the ground, you know, show up and stand in formation and be there at 8 a.m. on Saturday. But maybe you've got a bunch of required training that needs to take place. You've got planning meetings that are every week. You've got all of these other obligations that don't fit within that rigid schedule that uh, can creep in on your, your personal life. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with that, um, you get your medical taken care of, like you're on the same, the same healthcare that the U.S. military is on, which uh, was huge for me as a, as a <laughs> fresh engineer, because that stuff can get very pricey uh, very quick. And all of that experience, I mean, you don't get to play with a lot of uh, helicopters in my day-to-day -day life the way I did in the, in the military. Like they get all the cool gear. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so what words, um, what were you doing? You were in the national guard. What were you doing for, um, how were you earning your main living? Like what, what was your career uh, path? So in, in the national guard, I was a military intelligence officer. Uh, most of my time was spent uh, doing troop leading. So like running a team of, of people management style stuff. Um, I worked for a general for four years, which was the coolest job I had in the army uh, as his aide, basically drive him around, go on trips, took me to Korea, like really good times uh, as a reservist. And uh, I finished out as a company commander where I had uh, was assigned uh, ops company of the 40th infantry division, uh, which was based out of Sacramento and was in charge of 180 people and about $30 million worth of equipment. It's the most liability that I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> here I am living at my house in, in Silicon Valley, and it's like, oh, I've got $30 million sitting in a, in a fence in Sacramento. I hope, <laughs> hope my people there are telling me the truth. And then every month driving out there to count all the stuff and make sure, okay, yes, everything's going as it should be. Wow. So um, it just uh, not to belabor it too much longer, but explain that to me a little bit. Yeah. So you've got, you've got, $30 million worth of equipment sitting in a pen, um, just shy of 200 people under your purview. What are they doing when you're at work? Are they all reservists as well? And are they cycling through? Like what, what's happening uh, when you're not there? So the organization of the National Guard, uh, a chunk of them work full time, either in uh, California State or they work for the National Guard full time. Like the, the there are mechanics that work full time because trucks are always breaking down and you can't just work on them on the weekend. So if like you, you come in on the weekend and your truck is broke, you'll send it over to the field shop. And then some of my troops would be working that as their day job. And then on the weekends, they come over here. 
um, more than half though are were like me, where it's like, oh yeah, you know, I do I drive trucks for Coca-Cola delivering soda, or you know, I'm a doctor, or I'm an I'm an engineer, or what have you. Um, and it's, I mean, compared to the sort of mix of talents you get in the active duty, where it's like, yes, I'm a full-time soldier. This is everything I do. Um, the fact that everybody's got their civilian day jobs brings a bunch of additional skills and abilities yeah. that you wouldn't necessarily have um, into your organization. And I, I thought it was really cool. <laughs> yeah. I liked that. It's a subculture that, um, you know, that again, that I feel like we don't bump up, we don't bump into um, enough um, just in our day-to-day lives as Americans. How rare were you in Silicon Valley? Oh, somebody working full time and then doing part time in the military. Yeah, I, I, I'm a unicorn, man. <laughs> yeah, like it's. A, I mean, when I I started my career working for defense contractors, so uh, like working, I started out in Los Angeles uh, doing a contract gig at Northrop Grumman. Um, and so when you're working at those places, it's not nearly as rare because uh, having a security clearance and working at jobs that require a security clearance, you'll find a lot of people like that. Yeah. But when you get into below, like the open industry, like when I became a sales engineer, nobody had heard of the National Guard. They're like, this isn't going to affect your work, is it? Like, no, man, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I would would argue it makes me more effective because, uh, you know, I've got this basis of experience and all of this really crazy leadership experience you're not going to get anywhere else. I mean, that's, if you can deal with people telling you what to do, the military, there's almost no better place to start your career because uh, launching out of that can put you on so many different tracks to success and get new, new sets of skills along the way. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, uh, what were your, tell me a little bit about the career progression. Cause I want to talk about um, I want to make sure we, we, we stay at length in, in what you're doing now, but tell me a little bit about that evolution. How did you go from, um, having somebody tell you what to do <laughs> going into the workforce um, and then ultimately, uh, you know, heading down to South America and doing what you're doing now? I've always loved computers. Like I've been a huge computer nerd my whole life. Like there's a TV show on PBS called uh, Pirates of Silicon Valley, I think, or Fire in the Valley. But it was about the early computer industry, like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and how they built their small little empires to grow up. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. Like always been fascinated with that stuff. Um, mentioned how I knew I wanted to go to college, but didn't, wasn't sure how to pay for it. And ROTC became a really good fit for me. Studied computer engineering. Um, then when I graduated, I had about nine months of active duty training where you go through and become all of your initial officer stuff. Like this is how to be a military intelligence officer. This, uh, once that finished, uh, I moved out to Los Angeles to go work for Northrop Grumman uh, on a satellite program. Super cool. <laughs> Cause I also had been a big fan of space stuff. Yeah. Um, worked there for about two, two and a half years. And then, uh, took a similar job in the Valley, um, working for, that brought me to Northern California, working for general dynamics. Uh, but still, and I took that job because like, man, Silicon Valley seems cool. Seems like the place to be as a technologist. Like this seems where like I need to be, um, got recruited into startups, a little company called Zeta.net, uh, where I was selling uh, backup software to small, small businesses, small home offices. Uh, 
you know, a very a strong switch from like the super technical computer systems engineering to, you know, talking to people, answering that stuff, um, which I thought was super cool. Get to work around with really cool people. One of the guys at that company was a founding engineer at Netscape. Oh, nice. So like this dude invented the internet cookie, you know, like him, Lou Matuli, you know, and it's just like, I get all fangirly about that stuff. Like, Woo! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of just, course. Things that aren't going to happen on a horse farm in Arizona. Um, from there, I got recruited into a blockchain startup uh, as like employee number three. Uh, CEO was Chris Fine, and he's came out of the Air Force Academy. Um, so we had that military like, man, I like this guy. We I know what he's looking for. He, we know how to communicate. Really good dude. Um, and uh, we were selling uh, blockchain software to the Royal Bank of Canada. Mm. Built their credit card reward system, and I came in as like the primary systems integrator, like get that stuff in their system, make it work, collect requirements, keep the customer happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I got a lot of my blockchain experience. That's where like, that sets the stage for the coffee experiment that we're doing right now. Yeah. Um, also, it's in that job where I start to realize like selling software is really hard, you know, on a business sense, like what's cool about selling software is your incremental cost is effectively zero. All of the work goes into making that first copy like think Microsoft Windows, right? But I could print those CD-ROMs day in and day out and it cost me no extra to make that one more unit. And that's not true with pretty much any other product out there. And yeah, while I was at Manipal Technology, I met my wife, she's Colombian. We went down to Colombia after our wedding and met, went to, she asked me when we got there, do you want to go to like the coffee, uh, like Disneyland, <laughs> they've got an amusement park that's coffee themed. That's like very curated. Or, or do you want to go to like the real coffee farm? And I touched on my cultural background. I'm like, no, put me in with the farmers. Like, I want to see how that goes. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I was just taken aback. Like, there's so much work that goes into the coffee, um, and then what the farmers receive for the amount of effort that goes into producing that bean, which is where 70% of the end product come from, how well that bean is grown, um, is just astounding. Like 90% of the value chain is captured in the, logis- in the logistics uh, and the roasting, bringing it to you here in the US. And uh, it's like, man, I feel like we got to do something to help. There's got to be a better way. <laughs> yeah. And then the- uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have to ask, what, no? what, was, the, um, what was the core problem or the core opportunity that you identified that you said this this is begging for a solution or at the very least this is begging for someone to think about it well it was when i went to the coffee farm they had a truck show up and they've got their they've got their dried coffee beans they're still green but not roasted sitting in the big jute bags i don't have one in here i've got it downstairs but uh you see them on the walls you go to coffee shops and like okay the guys are throwing these bags in. i'm like oh let me help so i throw these bags in so we up the truck with these coffee bags and i was asking juan carlos who's my co-founder so what are the how much do you get for that coffee he's like well each one of those bags is one dollar and these are 70 kilos of green coffee and like right there in my head just doing the you know if i'm spending 12 bucks a pound on coffee in the u.s like where is all of this going (laughs) because it's not going to the people doing the work. And that's, that was my epiphany, bam. Like there's gotta be a better way for, to do this. <laughs> and uh, it 
combined with a change in regulation in Colombia, where formerly all exports out of Colombia had to go through the state uh, coffee federation. Mm. Now they're allowing individual farmers to uh, export directly. And that's my other co-founder, Mauricio. And so we've vertically, vertically integrated for, uh, all the way from the, the, uh, where they're growing to the export to the United States to the end consumer. And so is that essentially that, that consolidation, that vertical integration results in a direct-to-consumer business yes, that was previously exactly. not possible? Yes, exactly. And then, so that's the sort of business innovation. What role, um, what role does technology play in that beyond, you know, mundane things like you need e-commerce software or you need transaction yeah. software? Like what's the, what's the, um, what's the technology so, enabler there? Well, um, as part of exports, you have to pay, uh, like there's a lot of reg, um, controls in place on the payments going back to the farmers, mm. right? They want to make sure that they're getting paid for what they say because there's been issues where the, the, the coffee federation wants to make sure when they export coffee, the funds for that make it back into Colombia and are reinvested. They're not just end up in a bank account in Panama. Um, so I don't know if you've tried to send money internationally, but if I send, uh, try to, when I started doing this, I was just doing money straight wire transfers to pay for this. And a wire transfer uh, cost me $45 to Colombia. And that's, nuts that's crazy like some that's another thing that grabs my gears when i'm getting charged to use my money it's like oh no that's not how this is supposed to work so you want to send a thousand dollars bank of america or wells fargo whomever says okay that's your 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 bill is 1045 and arguably the 45 dollars has some interchange costs that they have for dealing with other banks but it's basically it cost them a dollar and yeah, they're making it, their 44 and you've just paid to use your money Precisely. And so what can we do to get rid of that? Well, I can't switch 100% over to blockchain payments right now because I have to demonstrate that re that uh, payment uh, remediation or there's a term for it when you repatriation back to Columbia through, through standard accounts. Um, I switched to, I work for bill.com today as my day job and I switched to using bill.com to do those international payments. Uh, since I've been working there, they added Columbia as a destination country. So it's just like, wow, this is great. Um, and I don't get that $45 charge sending it through them. They make their money in a little bit different uh, fashion. So that's one optimization. But also um, there's a, like, I think the farmers should be getting paid more. And if I can't pay them more, I can pay them more directly for this, but I want to be able to allow the ed consumer to tip the farmers. Like, hey, this coffee's astounding, delicious. And like you could send dollars, that would be cool, but I think it'd be much more cool to do it with Bitcoin or Ethereum, send it through a public blockchain. So we still are able to demonstrate the uh, payment repatriation to the Coffee Federation, but also have a second payment channel that goes to the farmers directly. And like really the whole basis of this business is to get the farmers paid more for their coffee because there's a huge imbalance in how that's set up now. And so that second payment channel basically um, for lack of a better way to say it, sits outside the repatriation documentation system. It's basically this uh, Juan Carlos is my friend and I'm sending him $5. It's yeah, it could be that way. Or it's like, damn, that was a really good bag of coffee. I want to say thank you. So I was thinking more like here's 50 cents <laughs> as opposed to five bucks. Yeah, yeah. But the point is from the regulatory body's point of view, they're not concerned with that transaction because it has yeah. nothing to do with the transfer of goods or anything like that. 
their books are already balanced. Yeah. And so um, by consolidating the, ver- or by through the vertical integration um, in the direct to consumer business, is that also generating more money for the, for the growers and the farmers or that's a separate? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we, we uh, it's, it's priced as a premium product right now. And the whole reason is because we pay more for that coffee right there. One of the things that came up during the documentary, I want to make sure I understood it correctly, was that, um, and please correct me, is that um, the nature of coffee as a commodity um, and the price fluctuations, basically there were, there, if I understood correctly, there were families or farmers who, by all rights, they should stop growing coffee um, because it's either unpredictable or there's, there's, there's whole periods of time where they're just, they're, the money doesn't make sense. But mm-hmm. um, it's what they do. And yes. so they continue to grow coffee. Um, like, and so uh, one, of the, one of the perceptions I left was with that you were somehow evening out those price fluctuations for them or helping them experience a different aspect of the well, financial market. See, I think about it like how we, how we think about wine here in California, right? Like I was at one Carlos's uh, house or at his farm and he pours me some coffee. I'm like, this is amazing coffee. Like there's no reason this should be a hundred percent, a dollar. And so like here in California, how do we price wine? Let's think about that. Right. Like you could purchase grapes from Napa County uh, as a commodity, but if you like, there's additional value that goes into, um, the bottling process that goes into the, the um, fermentation process. Mm, okay. But like, if you go to a winery and you, they pour you a couple of glasses, like, see this, this was growing on our, our reserve vineyard. It's over there, you know, sloped at 10 degrees, the soil pH is 7.4. Uh, you get those cool, you get those warm summer days with those cool summer nights. And it just makes for this really good. And like, the term I've heard it called, it's a French word, and forgive me, I don't speak French, uh, tour, I think, is the, like, if we can apply those same uh, ideas that we do to wine on this coffee market, you break the commodity cycle, right? Like, <laughs> the, if I can grow one beans that are, you know, not grown well, not the great growing techniques, and then another that are just like primo, excellent, everything, and then they both sell for the same value, there's there's a mismatch here. There's an opportunity. Yeah. And that's the second half that plays into it. It's not just paying the farmers more, but like we have a premium product. How do you position this and break that commodity cycle? And, it's like, and so you're trying to, you're telling a story basically around the commodity and that breaks the, the cycle in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And also like, what, what is it about coffee grown in Caldas that makes it different than coffee grown in Antioquia? Is it the altitude? Is it the humidity? Is it the temperature changes? Yeah. Like those, those are questions that, that I had when I started on this journey that I've been working to answer. Does, and then if I can take that and use it to train other, other folks, that, that's, that was the idea with the, uh, our connoisseur kit where we package up four different rows into a single. So you can do, do like a little tasting at home and see what it is that your palate likes best. And what's the reception on the consumer side to your product? Uh, very positive from where I'm at. I mean, I, this is my first uh, like internet business. So marketing has been the, the learning marketing journey has been very fun for me. <laughs> it's been a lot of new skills. Uh, so, but once I get it in front of people, they're like, Oh crap, this is amazing. Like I'll go do tasting events where I'll set up with my 
my different roasts and my French presses and for coffee. And like, I love talking about coffee and, uh, yeah, I, I get a lot of positives. The feedback I have is like, when are we expanding into other countries? And, uh, that's on the way. Yeah. So <laughs> is the notion right now that you will, you will be a direct to consumer business or are you, are you looking like, do you, is there distribution through supermarkets or specialty shops or, or is your play about direct to consumer? Uh, I focused on direct to consumer to start because the margins are highest. Yeah. Um, but the first, and it's, this is like when I went down and first met the coffee farmers, their dream is to sell to Walmart. And I'm like, well, I don't know, man, because selling to Walmart's hard because they, I don't know if you're familiar with their vendor contracts, they go out of their way to make it difficult to supply them and build them in such a way as you're not going to make that much profit. <laughs> but if you think of this from commodity terms, like I'm just trying to move units. I want to sell 10,000 uh, 10, pounds. I don't want to sell 10,000 pounds of, I want to send of $1 a pound coffee. I'd rather sell a hundred pounds of $10 a pound coffee. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like doing a deal with Walmart or or whoever the analog is, not to pick on them, is the path to the dollar a pound. Um, yes. it's, the, it's the guaranteed path to a dollar a pound <laughs> and a lot of heartache along the way. Um, it can't. Yeah. Not to say that we aren't. Like I've had some, we have had some business to business. Like I've focused in on some of the startups here in Silicon Valley to provide coffee for them. Um, although to be frank in COVID times, that's pretty much evaporated <laughs> as far as the direct, cause there's nobody in, in offices drinking coffee out here right now. Yeah. Just to backtrack a little bit, what's the, what are the dynamics at play? You know, if, if, if the sellers are getting a dollar for that 70 kilo bag, somebody's paying a dollar. So mm -hmm. who is it that is causing the price to be a dollar? Is it, is it, there's too much supply? Is it, there's a cartel mentality CME. on the buy side? So there's, there's two components here. There's the Chicago mercantile exchange, which sets the market prices on a given day. This is like the traders on the, on the floor in Chicago. And then the other half of that is in Colombia, at least is the coffee federation sets the day price for what they'll pay to the farmers. And those two often don't line up. And so, uh, I mean, that's why getting, getting that value chain out of the coffee federation and into the farmers themselves is beneficial because they do have to sell at that rate. That's that repatriation I spoke of, but they're able to keep more of that value chain um, in order to help grow their, their local business. Do the Chicago and the federation prices, like what is there, is that the money-making opportunity? Like the Delta there, somebody plays that, like how, what's the dynamic? Well, for the, the money-making opportunity for me is taking that $1 coffee and then uh, not selling it for above that, that price, like, and then paying the farmers more for that price. Like I want your best beans, bring me your best beans. And I get their best beans because I pay them more than if they were to go and sell it to the Federation. Um, but that <laughs> I could argue um, this is a thesis I've been working on quietly that much of the modern financial system has been designed to, uh, extract value from the producers, from the farmers. <laughs> and like the, this, that whole um, price setting scheme that I mentioned is not designed for the benefit of the farmers. It's designed for the benefit of the people setting the prices. And it's a cartel mentality. I mean, there's no, there's no dressing it up. Um, I think by almost any definition, you'd have to call it that. Um, and so is that the infrastructure 
like how annoying slash threatening slash disturbing are you to what I would call sort of like institutional coffee, <laughs> you know? Uh, I'm not, I'm not big enough to be scary to them yet. Um, but I'm hoping, and what I'm trying to demonstrate with this business is that there's other ways we can do this that uh, are so exploitive mm -hmm. <laughs> to the, the people producing the products. And um, but no, that like I expect if, if I'm able to grow and scale the way I have plans to, that we will come up on their radar. We will cross that bridge when we do so. <laughs> yeah. Is your model, is the notion that you have your, your eyes and your heart and your mind set on coffee growers or is the idea that this model could be pointed at other commodity export businesses? Uh, definitely could be pointed, but as I get more and more, I mean, I picked coffee cause I love it. <laughs> like, and I know if, if we come into some kind of civilization calamity events, like people are still going to want to wake up in the morning and drink their coffee more. So and like, <laughs> and like th this is why I picked this man, but it's, there's no reason it couldn't be expanded to others, but just the amount of learning I've had to do to become uh, authoritative on the subject. Like I would, there's enough problem space in coffee that I don't need to get out of coffee to expand, but there's no reason these principles couldn't be applied in other markets. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite little segments or vignettes from the documentary was um, when the grower laid out the beans of, and it, it was the sort of rainbow of colors and, and there was sort of like the upper call it like fifth of them. And he said, this is the good coffee right here. Yeah. This is where the good coffee comes from. And um, it was such a, you know, the visual was so stunning and um it, I, I got that feeling of like hunger and thirst <laughs> yes. I, and, and you know, the beans themselves don't normally look appetizing, right? The raw coffee beans, but they were so beautiful. Oh, when you see them in fruit, they they're cherries, like they're sweet. You can go pick them off and put them in your mouth and it's delicious. Like there, there's a lot of opportunity for additional coffee products beyond the coffee beans that are just now starting to present themselves. Um, but starting with coffee beans because everybody wants it, everybody can use it. Yeah. Uh, but like, I think it was a year and a half ago, Starbucks started experimenting with like frappuccinos that were flavored like the coffee uh, fruit, the coffee cherry. And uh, uh, the, believe it or not, just the coffee, the, left, the cherry parts that they take off of the beans were selling for more than the beans themselves just because they're the market demand was so messed up. Wow. I mean, there's something amazing and timely about that just in terms of sustainability and using all the parts yeah. of the, of the raw material. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's but even there at Juan Carlos's farm. When you, when you take the cherry off of the bean, there's like a little skin on the outside of the, uh, the coffee bean itself. It's like a little nut. Um, and you might see this in your ground. When, if you open up a bag and you see like little paper, like brown paper pieces on the inside of your bags. That, that's a little bit of that. At Juan Carlos's farm, after they take the bean off of that shell, they'll collect them, dry them out, and that's what they use to actually heat up the coffee dryers. Oh, wow. So, it, so it's not like they're burning external fuel. It's like stuff they grew on the coffee they use to then dry the coffee beans once they're harvested. Yeah, that's awesome. That's amazing. Um, when did you guys launch? Uh, we first started shipping product in January, 2019. Okay. And what, and so, what was the trajectory and what was the impact of COVID? It's been a, a long steady March. I mean, uh, as I said, learning how to market to people on the internet has been the biggest 
thing for me in, in 2020. Um, so like, I think of Wayne's world where it's like, if you build it, they will come. Right. <laughs> and so I built it and they'd all didn't just start rushing through the door. It's, you have to be able to tell your story. You have to be able to get people to see it. And, um, so it's, it's been picking up. It got pretty hockey sticky. We like when I was selling coffee to the startups, like, um, that was a lot of volume at the time. And when the COVID hit, it was like February, eh, April, when those orders mostly got canceled, mm. uh, it did hurt. <laughs> like you took a nice little chunk out of revenue, but the organic sales direct to consumer stuff has been picking up. And now we're back up above where we were in April. That's cool. uh, timing has been really good because like, even though businesses aren't drinking coffee there, pe- everyone's drinking coffee at home. So it's just getting my, my products in front of their face yeah. so that they could say, Oh, let's give it a shot. And most people are happy. <laughs> has COVID impacted your growers or your supply chain at all? It certainly has, but uh, I mean, my supply chain is mostly FedEx <laughs> today. So FedEx is is doing gangbusters. They've never shipped more packages ever in their life. And um, they were on lockdown at one point earlier in Colombia, but I think most of that's subsided. I know they have cases active down there. Like I, I had planned to go to Colombia this past October until uh, COVID hit. I pushed that trip out a year. Um, but they seem to be doing all right. They're hanging in there. <laughs> yeah. Coffee prices, believe it or not, have gone down, I think 2% over the past year. Or so every time those commodity prices go down, that's directly out of their revenue. So it's not comfortable for them. Yeah. Yeah. And what's, what's next for you? What does 2020 mean for the business? Well, or 2021 uh, rather, I, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I'm right there with you. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> Well, we've got, uh, I'm going to be building out that, uh, that, uh, that uh, farmer tipping platform mm-hmm. that I mentioned. So it's, it's building the uh, technology infrastructure to support that. Uh, we're doing a fundraise right now with WeFunder. So if any of this sounds interesting, I would encourage you to invest in our seed round. Mm-hmm. And we'll make we sure we link it. to that from the episode notes too. I, I really appreciate that. Um, and then continuing to scale. Uh, we're going to be looking to bring uh, roasting operations out here to California and uh, growing. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, um, is it been bootstrapped or, or do you have investments so far? Or have you, what have you done? Uh, I have, I have been bootstrapping this out of pocket primarily. I have one, uh, one outside investor who gave me 10 grand. And aside from that, it's all me. Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. How does that feel? Dude, it's hard. <laughs> you know, people like, I don't know, you, you watch all these videos in the Silicon Valley dream, right? Social network. Oh man, you got people falling over themselves to just throw stacks of cash at you. And uh, it's not that way, actually. The reason not everybody starts a business and goes and it's, instead works for somebody else is because it's a, it's a hard, lonely road. Um, you got to believe and like it's designed. The reason it's, how do I want to say this? The fact that it's hard doesn't mean that it's not supposed to be done. The fact that it's hard keeps the non-hackers out. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's it's, it's a forcing function or a qualifier. Yeah. 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 Well, um, thank you for sharing your story. And um, Lawrence, thanks for listening, man. It's been wonderful talking to you. Yeah. I love learning <laughs> about you. And um, I mean, you know, if you, it, it's about coffee's about as close to a universal <laughs> 
<laughs> a universal truth as we have right now. I think it's something that all sides agree on. <laughs> Except for those damn tea people. I don't know about them, but um Oh, we don't we don't discriminate. <laughs> I'll take tea. Too. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Tyler and the team at Coffee Shift. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our new website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week, and in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch.